Well, Happy New Year again. I'm glad to know that we can dance in the new year, Drew. That's always good to know. <laughs> Not that we will, but <laughs> that the possibility, who knows? The possibility is always there. Um, I would like to read for you from our text this morning. This morning's text is from Luke chapter 3. Um, Drew said this is Epiphany Sunday. This is John the Baptist's proclamation. Introducing Jesus to the world, uh, we'll take it in the middle of, his, of Luke's discussion of John the Baptist, beginning at verse 7. John said to the crowd coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now, the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, well, what then should we do? In reply, he said to them, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none. And whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized, and they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? He said to them, Collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what should we do? He said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations, and be satisfied with your wages. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I've never thought of John the Baptist as uh, a model preacher, uh, st starting with brood of vipers. Um, it re he reminds me a little bit of Bob Newhart's sketch. You remember Bob Newhart? Some of you remember Bob Newhart. He was a comedian. Okay, um, And he had a sketch where he's a, he is the... Um, the psychologist, and a woman calls and needs to uh, come in and see a psychologist, and so she comes in, and she has a particular problem of uh, having this recurring thought of how she's going to die, and it's very unpleasant. Um, and she needs help kind of getting over it and getting through it, and so uh, he gives her some of the instructions on how his operation works, and so she sits down, and she, he says, okay, so tell me what's going on. So she tells him, and uh, about two minutes into the uh, counseling session, he says, okay, okay, uh, that's enough. Um, I want you, I, I just have two words for you. Some of you know this. I have two words for you. And she says, oh, okay, so she gets, shall I write it down? And he says, well, most people can remember them, but if you would like to write them down, that's fine. And she said, okay, are you ready? Yes. Stop it. <laughs> Just stop it. I'm not sure that would fly with BCC, um, <laughs> but, uh, but that's what he says. And she says, well, m but my mother, no, we don't go there. We don't go there. Stop it. Well, but when I was a kid, no, no, we don't go there. Stop it. Well, my horoscope, no, we really don't go there. Just stop it. And so he says, we're done, unless you have something else. And she says, well, I have, I have a few more 
uh, minutes, I guess, and so she talks, stop it. So John the Baptist is doing basically the same thing when he talks to the crowd. Now, I'll explain that in a minute. But what John the Baptist does is he starts with this phrase, you brood of vipers, you, you offspring of snakes, um, the, you, you serpents, you family of serpents. I mean, it's, not, it's a harsh word. And it's a harsh word to them, and he doesn't really soften it, uh, as he can see uh, on their faces. Uh, they know that they have caused some doubt and some fear and some not being kind to neighbor and not being kind to strangers and so forth. They've repented. They're, they're out there because they've repented of this uh, and they've been baptized. But he continues and he doesn't even, uh, uh, well, he continues with a question. Who told you, who, who warned you to flee the wrath that is coming? Now, this is John's eschatological sermon. This is his sermon about the end of time. All of a sudden, the time is now. The end of time is coming. Jesus is on his way, and that's going to be the inauguration of the end of time. It may not be the final end, but it's the beginning of the end. And so, there they are, getting ready for it. He says, who, who warned you? It's a rhetorical question, because he doesn't wait for an answer. And then he says, make fruit worthy of your repentance. And the axe is uh, already laid at the tree. Now, what they say basically is, well, but Abraham is our father. Abraham is our spiritual and physical ancestor, so we don't need to worry. We're already in God's good graces. And he says, no, you're not. He says, the stones that you're standing on, God can make those into children of Abraham. If your, if your behavior doesn't match Abraham's call and God's call on Abraham's life, then you're not ready. And besides that, the axe is right there. It's, it's at the foot of the tree. And if the tree is unfruitful, then it's going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. By analogy, if a person is unfruitful, if a person is not producing the kind of fruit that demonstrates their, their repentance, then they too are going to see the fire of God's judgment. Well, what, what would they say? What, what do they think about John at this point? And my hunch is they would say, John, you've been in the wilderness a little too long. Um, you need to be re-socialized. You don't, you don't talk that way to people. Uh, you want us to do something? Well, then uh, bring us into the conversation and let's uh, talk about it and we'd be happy to dialogue with you about it. No, John doesn't go there. They think he's crazy? No. They actually, the interesting thing is, they actually think he knows something about their insides and about their behavior. He has pegged them accurately, and they have come out to uh, confess uh, their sin and to repent and to be baptized. Now, they understand that John is in the line of the great prophets. I mean, Isaiah started, if you go back to, to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah started with the idea of the wickedness of the people. Jeremiah starts with uh, the need for repentance. Ezekiel starts with, why are you so rebellious? Why have you turned to be rebe rebels and, and rebelling against God? And so this tradition uh, is a long-time tradition. And their understanding that John himself stands in that tradition and they come out and they hear him as the prophet of God. So they ask the question, what should we do? 
What should we do? It's a simple question. What should we do? Listen to um, one of these books is the one I want. Uh, <laughs> David Gushy, he's a, he's a Christian ethicist. Uh, in this book, Introducing Christian Ethics, Core Convictions for Christians Today, he says this about that particular question. The one big question in the moral arena is, how should I or how should we live? That's the one big question. This can be framed as broadly or as narrowly as one likes. Perhaps on a bleak fall day over a cup of coffee, you might find yourself asking the question, in relation to your whole of life, how should I live my life? And he says, well, if you do that, prepare for a long day. Uh, probably most, you, most often, you and I will be asking this question in relation to specific issues, concerns, or relationships. How should I live in relationship to money? How should I live in relationship to politics? How should I live in relation to, to my mother or my mother-in-law or any other relation that we have? But he says, this is the one big question. Um, what should we do? How should we live? And so the crowd is asking the right question. What shall we do? Um, one of the interesting things to me, and I think this is uh, something that I hadn't seen earlier, but one of the interesting things is when, I, when Luke quotes Isaiah, uh, we didn't read it, it's just before this, when he quotes Isaiah, he ends with the phrase, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. All flesh will see the salvation of God because the mountains are going to be brought down, humbled, the, the valleys are going to be filled up, they're going to be full, There's, the crooked are going to be straight, the ways, and everything is going to be good, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. How are they going to see the salvation of God? So John, this is epiphany, right? John is going to introduce them to the Messiah. John is going to introduce them to Jesus, whose sandal, he isn't even worthy to untie the, the, the strap of his sandal. And so... How are people going to see the salvation of God? And it seems to me that one, one of the things that Luke is telling us is that in John's ministry of call to repentance and baptism, what is happening here is he is challenging the people to make uh, their behavior worthy of their repentance. What he's saying is that people will see the salvation of God, the God's saving work taking place in your life, in your behavior. That's how people are going to see this. Now, yes, they will see it in Jesus. Jesus is going to come. He's going to teach. He's going to do miracles. He's going to give his life as a ransom for many. He's going to be raised. Yes, the salvation of God is in Jesus, but it is also in the behavior of those who follow Jesus. The saving work of God is happening in your life and in your behavior so this world can see what God is doing. So the question is critically important. It is the hope, uh, the answer of it, I should say, and the behavior is the hope of the world. It's the hope of the world. It's God's salvation in action. It's God's saving work in action demonstrated in your behavior. And what is God's action? God's radical generosity is forgiveness and life. God's radical generosity is forgiveness and life. The new life that we live has everything to do 
with the fruits or the fruit of our life, the behavior of our actions. Well, the crowd has given both a general and a specific uh, answer to the question. Now, you know, one of the interesting things, uh, as Janie and I were talking about this, if we just stop the scene there, John the Baptist has now done his sermon, everybody's been baptized, they're sitting on the, on the uh, banks of the Jordan, um, it's quiet, they've asked the question, what are we going to do? What do you think John should say? Should he say, well, study the Bible a little more and you'll see that I'm really right? Or go build another temple. Uh, God needs more than one. Or start a Bible study so other people can do this. Or go tell it on the mountain. No, none of those. Here's what he says. So the crowd says, what should we do? John the Baptist responds to the question to the crowd. And he says this. Something that is radically simple. I'm using radically a lot today. Something radically simple. It's too simple. In fact, it is compassionate and it's just, but it just might be resisted. To the crowd, if you have two shirts or coats or undergarments and you see somebody that doesn't have one, give one to them. If you're eating, and you see somebody who's hungry and doesn't have any food, give some to them. That's all. That's all? Really? That's it? Seriously. So he's, he's looking at something that is so core to human life, clothing and food, and share what you have. Don't be stingy is another way to say that. Don't be stingy with what you have. Stop it, in Bob Newhart's words. Stop it. Don't be stingy. Well, okay, what about the toll collectors? Now, the toll collectors are not the, the big tax guys. That is, they're not the ones who, um, who the Romans are, are the ones, I should say, who are collecting the taxes for uh, the land, for the property, for the houses, for the, for the families. But the little taxes, the toll taxes, the, the customs, uh, the commodities and so forth. Uh, you, th these toll collectors would um, buy the privilege of collecting those taxes from the Roman government and then they would have to recoup throughout the year, they would have to recoup their, um, what they spent on buying that and then they wanted to make a little profit. I mean, maybe they wanted to put in another addition on their house or another, uh, expand their family a little bit or something. Uh, and so it was right for them, they could make a little profit. Uh, but the tradition or the, their, their reputation was that they would gouge the people, that they were greedy, that they would get as much as they could get. And so what, uh, in, again, Bob Newhart's words, stop it. Stop being greedy. Um, do what is fair. John tells them to do what is fair. And then what about the soldiers? Well, the soldiers, you know, what should we do? Because they have authority, they have privilege. What should they do? Well, the, the interesting thing is, don't shake people down. And, and the word that's used here is the word, when, when people went out to harvest figs, they would shake the tree and the figs would drop and then they would pick them up and take them. Don't do that to people. Don't shake them down and see what comes out and, get, and take whatever you can find. 
So what he's saying here is very, very practical, day in, day out kind of living. Food and clothing and finances and relationship. Don't intimidate people. Stop it. Don't be greedy. Stop it. Don't be stingy. Stop it. Now, stopping it isn't necessarily the only way to live. Obviously, we want to fill that in. So this is almost not only a, 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 a discussion that John the Baptist has about repentance, it's also about replacement. What are you going to replace that? If you do stop this kind of behavior and let your behavior be worthy of your repentance, what are you going to replace it with? Well, let me say just a couple of things. First of all, if we take a step back from this particular text, it seems to me that one of the things that we're called on is to loosen our grip on our possessions, our rights, and our privileges. Loosen your grip on it. Uh, it's not going to get you to the salvation of God anyway. The salvation of God comes as a gift of God, forgiveness, new life, but loosen your grip on those things. And if somebody is in need, share it with them. Now, the thing is, he doesn't tell us, okay, now take these three steps to get there. No, we have to figure that out. That's what later the Holy Spirit will come down upon Jesus. The Holy Spirit is supposed to guide us as well. But just loosen your grip. The second thing, if we take a step back, what we see is that the other, that is the one who is in, next to you in the pew or across the aisle or outside in the dorm or downtown or your neighbor, that other also has a claim on your life. We live in community. We are co-inheritors of the creation. We are uh, co-inhabitants of this world. And whoever that is, is a, co, uh, is, a, is a part of the community of the human family. And so we live there. And that particular reality then uh, enables us to share, uh, and we also have a claim on their life. So it's this community building of loosening our grip on the basic necessities of life um, and the way that we're going to treat one another. And then it's also admitting that they also, those others, have a claim on our life and that we can live in community as we understand our relationship with one another. So what John's primary challenge is, it's straightforward. Some would say it's raw, it's core. Don't, this is how First John would say it, don't close off your compassion. Stop it. Share what you have. Don't take what is not yours. Stop it. Don't rely on your privilege or status to get you what you want from others. Stop it. Now, the other thing, if we take a step back and we read the rest of the story, we realize that there is more than just stopping it. There is a new life that is given to us. Jesus Christ has come to give us that new life. And, and there is a new way of living in, in light of that new life that we have. I'm going to end with these words uh, from John Muir. I love John Muir's writings. Um, John Muir, uh, I think he's just fabulous. Anyway, um, 
This is on his, his experience at Glacier Bay. He's, he's going to Glacier Bay. He wants to see the, um, uh, the glaciers there. And it's winter. I mean, it's, it's approaching winter. It's also um, uh, stormy. And it's uh, not a place that you want to be at that time. He's in a canoe with several Native Americans and some other people who are going north. Uh, in late October, the ice is already forming, and, and yet he wants to keep going north. And one of the uh, Native American guides says about him, Muir must be a witch to seek knowledge in such a place as this, and in such miserable weather. Because they're all cold, and they're, uh, they're out there in the weather, and he wants to keep going and keep going. And another one says uh, something about, I would, he, he, uh, if he's so fond of danger, let him go, uh, but... Um, he would not consent to go any further. So both of the guides said, we're not going. And Muir, okay, so he's thinking. Now here's what he says. They seem to be losing heart with every howl of the storm uh, and fearing that they might fit, and fearing that they might fail me now that I was in the midst of such a grand congregation of glaciers, which possibly I might never see again. I made haste to reassure them, telling them that for 10 years I had wandered alone among mountains and storms, and that good luck always followed me. That with me, therefore, they need not fear nothing, or they need fear nothing. Uh, that the storm would soon cease, and the sun would shine. I don't know how he can promise this, but he does. Uh, the sun would shine, and that heaven cared for us and guided us all the time, whether we knew it or not. But that only brave men had a right to look for heaven's care. Therefore, all childish fear must be put away. Now that's his speech. That's his sermon to these uh, co-explorers uh, with him, the guides that were there. And then he says, this little speech did some good. Uh, one of them, uh, with some enthusiasm, said he likes traveling with good luck people. Uh, <laughs> And dignified old, one of the other ones, declared that now his heart was strong again. And he would venture on with me as far as I liked, for my talk was very good. The old warrior even became a little sentimental and said that if the canoe were crushed, he would not greatly care because on the way to the other world, he would have pleasant companions. Okay. That's the way Jesus invites us into life. John's stop it might be the first step. Just stop some of our behavior. But the reason we can do that is because Jesus has invited us into a new way of living. And to make our behavior, our repentant, or our behavior fit our repentance. So in a moment, we're going to come and feast at the Lord's table. We come with an attitude of repentance and a commitment to live out the salvation of God, the radical generosity of, of God in our lives. Let's take a moment to prepare our hearts for communion.